Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. Big thanks to Steve Como for filling in for me last week. I was blessed by his lesson got to listen to that. I trust that you were blessed as well. Uh, the retreat was also very, um, very much a blessing uh, that I that went on last week. Went to the desert and had some time away from the hubbub of Los Angeles. So that was that was nice. But we're back in the New Testament today. We are continuing to learn from and learn about Jesus, learn about his authority, learn about his teaching. And today's topic is a sobering one. We're talking about true discipleship. That is what it really means to follow Jesus and what it costs to follow Jesus. Let's pray as we prepare to hear this word. God, I pray that you'd help me really explain this word well. I need your spirit and spirit empowerment and i pray god that you would work among the people that they'd be encouraged but they'd also be instructed and convicted where necessary lord feed us with your word in jesus name amen when it comes to this topic of the cost of discipleship i i can't help but think back to kind of a silly silly experience i had in high school in high school i uh i had a really nice situation i was by the time I was uh, a senior, by the time I graduated, I was very well liked in my school. I had a good reputation. I had performed in a number of uh, theater, uh, theater performances, musicals, and I had apparently done a good job in that. And so people liked me from that. I was also known for being uh, a good student and I was respected for that. And in God's providence, these different things allowed me many opportunities to talk about God with people. Or we would do our rehearsals for our stage shows. I would try and talk to people about the Lord. Or even in class, I would, I would want to find a way to talk about Jesus in whatever we were discussing. Or even just throughout the day or in different get-togethers with students, I wanted to talk about Jesus. And God just kept opening doors and, it, and uh, so, much, so much opportunity to talk about him. I was so excited, so encouraged, and I was so uh, impressed that it seemed like everybody still liked me, even though I would talk about Jesus all the time. And I thought, and this is the silly part, I thought that I had discovered the secret as to how to be a faithful Christian and not suffer. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it seemed like I'd found the perfect balance between being nice to people and telling them the truth so that I would not be persecuted. I would not suffer. It's true, I guess, that there were some people that didn't like me, but it didn't seem to faze me or those people weren't that vocal about it. So I thought I discovered the secret. Fast forward just a couple of years. I had entered college. I'm at Rutgers University. And uh, I had this one pivotal experience my first year. I'm a freshman in college. And I remember sitting down with some of my dorm mates. I was living on, on campus at the time. We were just about to eat lunch, and one of the persons sitting opposite from me, he was an unbeliever, and I, he, he started to use some curse words right before we were about to eat. And I wanted to see if I could turn that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. So I said something along the lines of, oh, well, you don't need to use those words. And then to my surprise, uh, the person who was also sitting near me suddenly got very angry. And she began to rail against me by saying, how dare you tell him that something that he is doing is wrong? And what then proceeded was about a half hour of her attacking me, accusing me, and condemning me for being an unloving and um, an unfair person. What surprised me the most about all of this, first of all, I didn't think I had said anything that offensive. But second of all, the person who was attacking me was a Christian or at least someone who claimed to be a Christian. I was trying to defend myself, trying to explain what, I, what um, the, the reason that I just want to talk about Jesus, but she was so angry. And I was so traumatized by the experience that it was about five o'clock. I guess it wasn't lunch. I guess it was dinner time. I went back to my dorm after that conversation and I just went to bed <laughs> because I, was, I couldn't believe what had happened. I had never thought that I would be attacked so severely. And I never thought that it would come from another Christian. Have you ever experienced something like that where you suddenly come under attack 
for doing something good, and you never thought it would happen. You, in that moment, you wonder to yourself, what went wrong? How could this happen? Really, if I had taken seriously Jesus' words in the scriptures, maybe I wouldn't have been so surprised. Because one of the things that Jesus makes clear in his teaching is that those that follow him, those that are his true disciples, they are going to experience a great cost. And part of that cost is they will suffer for him and they will be persecuted. And this is an important teaching for us to understand, and it's what we're going to investigate today. Jesus not only taught his disciples that they should expect to be persecuted, but he also taught how and why they are to endure that persecution. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a disciple, a learner of Jesus, now what we're talking about today is extremely relevant to you. Whether you whether you're in a situation in which you're currently being persecuted or whether it's not something you're experiencing right now, you need to know this teaching. Well, where we're going to hear this teaching is in the book of Matthew chapter 10. So please open your Bibles to Matthew 10. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 42. Let's get the context here as you're turning to it. We're in the middle of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. We've actually been around this area not too long ago. Opposition is increasing to Jesus. In Matthew 9, some of the Pharisees, when they observe Jesus casting out demons, they say, he cast out demons by demons. And in Matthew 12, they say it again, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. That is another way to say Beelzebub. That was a title of a Philistine deity, but it was also used as a way to talk about Satan, the lord of the demons, the lord of the flies. He casts out demons by Beelzebub. In Matthew 11, just a chapter after the passage we're looking at, Jesus condemns many of the cities in Judea for not believing. He condemns the whole generation for being unrepentant. So we're in this this context of increasing opposition, both from the Pharisees and unbelief from the people. But before we get to that more culmination of that opposition, or at least that that um, that point where we see a shift in Jesus' ministry, we get Matthew 10. And at the beginning of Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples to act as evangelists throughout Judea. And they are going to proclaim the kingdom. The king is here. The, king in, the kingdom is at hand. You need to repent. And in the first 15 verses of this chapter, Jesus gives specific instructions to his disciples about where they're to minister how they're to do it, how the Lord is going to miraculously provide for them. They don't even need to take extra provisions for themselves. God's going to provide. They're to depend on him. It gives them miraculous power. They can heal. They can cast out demons. And they're sent out to preach the 12 disciples. But starting in verse 16, we'll get another aspect of Jesus' instruction to his disciples as he sends them out. And that's what I want to focus on with you today. So read with me as we go to look at verses 16 to 42. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But even when they, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, Flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, 
or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. All right, this is a great section, big section, important section. Let's observe, interpret, and apply. Start with observations. This text breaks down neatly, in my opinion, into three sections. And you can see this even with some of the transition words in the text. We start with the word behold in verse 16, and then we see in verse 26 the word therefore, and then in verse 32, again, the word therefore. Each of those therefore shifts or indicates a shift in topic. And as we look at each one of these sections, we're going to see that each one of those sections has one main idea. The first section, the first section uh, and its topic is what the disciples should expect. What should they expect when they go out? And Jesus says a number of things. What exactly should the disciples expect? They should ex expect hostility as if from wolves. They should expect to be put on trial. They should expect scourging in synagogues. By the way, what's scourging? It's whipping. It's a particular kind of whipping. A scourge was kind of like a, um, a whip with multiple lashes. Sometimes a scourge is, is called a cat of nine tails. So imagine a whip that has nine or more straps of leather that would all be used to whip a person at one time. And sometimes these straps would have hard ends on them. They would have pieces of bone or uh, something hard that whenever, it, whenever someone is lashed, it rips the skin. It tears the skin. So to be scourged is, is quite painful. But it was a common kind of punishment at that time in the ancient world. So he says that some... You're going to be scourged. You're going to be brought before Gentiles or Gentile rulers to give testimony to them and to the Gentiles. You're going to be betrayed by families. There's going to be family betrayal, and you're going to be hated by all. But why? Why all this hostility? Jesus says, what's the reason? It's because it's because of him. He says, verse 22, it's because of my name. Or verse 25, if they hate the master, they're going to hate his disciples. They're going to hate his slaves. And verse 24, he says, it is enough that disciples become like their teacher. If they hate the master, they're going to hate the slaves too. Not only because they hate the slaves for being associated with the master, but they also hate the slaves because they're like their master. He says, you're going to be hated because of me. But in this section where he's describing what they should expect, 
he also gives a number of practical instructions as to how they should react. How should they react to these things? Well, verse 16, be shrewd. Don't be naive. Act with discernment and wisdom. Also in verse 16, be innocent. Don't give just cause for people to attack you or to malign you. Verse 17, beware men. Don't be ignorant about their intentions. Verse 19, don't worry about what you're going to say. Why not? Well, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in those hours where you have to give testimony. Verse 22, endure to the end. Why? Because only the ones who endure to the end will be saved. And in verse 23, he says, flee persecution. Wait a second, that doesn't make sense. He just told people to endure. Well, it's interesting the reason he gives for fleeing persecution. He says, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Son of Man, we've seen that by now. That's Jesus. And the coming of the Son of Man, that represents Jesus coming in his kingdom. It says, you won't finish by the time I come going through all the cities of Israel. He says, that's the reason that they should actually flee persecution. The idea is you're not going to run out of places to go to and speak before I come. This is the first section, what to expect. Let's look at the second section that begins after the word therefore in verse 26. Second section is all about why they should, even though these things are going to come, why they should not fear man. Why not? We get a couple of reasons. Verse 26, Jesus says, all things that are hidden are eventually going to be revealed. That's reason number one. Reason number two, verse 28. Men cannot kill the soul. They can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. So don't fear them. But who can kill the soul? God. Fear God. And then in verse 29 and 30, a third reason, he says the Father cares for you. What we see is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Because he says, God cares for sparrows. Sparrows only cost a cent. Do you... At Calvary, do you notice the sparrows that exist around your community? I mean, there's tons of these tiny little birds that are flying around. You probably don't even notice them. Or if you do, you don't really think of them. They're insignificant. But Jesus says, not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father knowing about it, without the Father ordaining it. He has total care and control over those sparrows. Even though most people don't care about sparrows, God does. And how much more, Jesus says, does God care about you? You are more valuable to him than many sparrows. The hairs of your head are all numbered. He cares about the sparrows, but he has such an intimate care over you that even the individual hairs that you don't even know about, you can't count them. You haven't numbered them. He's watching over them. He's controlling them. He cares for you. So you don't have to be afraid. And isn't that amazing that God would care for people in such, in that intimate of a way. So in light of those reasons, what should the disciples do? Exactly what Jesus commissioned them to do. Verse 27, what you heard in the dark, proclaim in the light. And what you heard whispered, proclaim upon the rooftops. Declare Jesus' word boldly everywhere. So that's the second section. So we've seen what they should expect, why they should not fear men, and then thirdly, why they must live with a view towards a final future verdict. Why they must live with a view towards a future verdict. Notice there are many statements in this last section about a kind of final judgment. And I'm not necessarily talking about punishment here. The text not necessarily talking about punishment but of a final decision, verdict, or even revelation. There's going to be a final result that's going to become known based on what happens now in the present. And notice the ways that Jesus describes it. He says, if you confess Jesus now, he will confess you then in the future at the last time. If you deny Jesus now, he will deny you then. If you love parents more than Jesus, you will not be worthy of Jesus. That is, you're not going to receive Jesus. He's not going to own you. You're not going to receive his reward. And Jesus says plainly, plainly, 
I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword, a sword into families. He says, if you love children more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you do not take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me, Jesus says. Now, we need to make sure we understand this phrase to take up one's cross. And this is the first time a cross is mentioned in the book of Matthew. Jesus has not been crucified yet, so they don't, they don't know about that. But when Jesus says, you have to take up your cross, how would the disciples have understood that? Say that again, please. Exactly, exactly. They would have been thinking about death. Basically, Jesus, they would understand Jesus to mean you have to prepare to be executed by a cross if you want to follow me. We have a Christian tradition that to take up one's cross is to bear a burden in life. Oh, you know, I've got this difficult situation, but that's my cross to bear. Well, it is true that we do have different burdens that we bear in life, but that's not what this phrase is talking about. This is about execution for Jesus' sake. You're carrying the method of your execution all the while you follow Jesus. I think it's Luke's version. He says you have to take up your cross daily. To put it another way, maybe more modern terms, it's like saying if you want to follow Jesus, you need to take up your stake and the torch with which you're going to be burned. Or you need to take up the hangman's noose with which you're going to be hanged. Or you need to take up the toxins of the lethal injection in which you're going to be executed. He says, this is what it means if you're going to follow me. you got to take these up in the present. But he couldn't have used any of these modern execution analogies because the cross is a unique kind of death. It's not just death, but it's a humiliating death. It's a painful death. It's prolonged death. Jesus says, this is what you must do in the present so that you will be worthy of me in the future. It is interesting that this is exactly what Jesus himself will do. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, it's actually very appropriate because Jesus will do this first. In a way, Jesus is foreshadowing his own death. The disciples will be like their master, or they ought to be ready to be like their master, even to be crucified like their master will be. Jesus goes on to say, he who has found his life now will lose it in the future. But he who loses his life now, for my sake, he will find his life in the future. It's interesting that this future result or this future verdict is not just for the 12 disciples as they go out, but also for those who receive them. It's interesting, maybe a little bit perplexing at the end. He, he takes this aside to say, he who receives you receives me and receives the one who sent me. And he says this thing about he receives a, a prophet or a righteous man receives their reward or, or the reward of a, a prophet or reward of a righteous man. What is he talking about? Well, think about the different prophets that we've seen in scripture, the different righteous men. As they interacted with people in the Old Testament, some people received their word and some people didn't. What was the result for those that received the words of the prophets? Many of them, they were blessed. They were saved. They were given some kind of deliverance. I can point you to a few examples. Think back to Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, uh, while he's sojourning, he goes to the widow of Zarephath. You remember her, she has a son. She's gathering wood. She's going to make a meal and then die because she doesn't have any more food left. It's a famine. But Elijah comes to her and he says, if you make me some food, then you're not going to die and God's going to provide for you. She believed the word of Elijah. She made him some food and then God provided so that she didn't run out of food during the time, but she and her son had enough to live on. Same thing for Elisha. Elisha stops by at the Shunammite's house. Shunammite was married to uh, another, or married to her husband, but she didn't have any children. But she saw that Elisha needed a place to stay and that he was a man of God. So she said, let's build a, a room for him so that whenever he stops by, there's a place for him to stay. She received this prophet. And after a while, Elisha said, Lord, I want to do something for this woman. 
finds out that she's barren, that she would love a, uh, to have a son. And so he prays to God on her behalf, and she's given a son. She received a reward, a reward for receiving the prophet. And we could point to many other examples in the Old Testament, not just um, individuals, but kings and whole nations. Whenever they receive the prophet, they receive the reward based on that. Now, if that was true for prophets and righteous men in the Old Testament, how much more is it true for those who receive the Son of God and the representatives of the Son of God? It's, again, an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, those who receive you, they're receiving me. They're not going to lose their reward, even if all they can offer you is a cup of cold water. And they're going to receive a reward. So you see, this last section, we have this constant theme of what people do now is going to result in certain outcomes in the future. And you and they are to be mindful of that. All right, so this is our first step, observation. We've looked at the different details of the text. Let's now move to our second step, interpretation, and ask some questions based on what we've read. First of all, we know the context here, but is Jesus speaking about only the immediate ministry of the disciples to Judea at this time, or is he speaking further into the future? He definitely has the future in mind. Some of the things that he says are going to happen to these disciples, they don't happen right now. In fact, if we look at the rest of the Gospels, when the disciples come back from this first ministry foray, they're actually really excited. They come back and they say, oh, oh Lord, even the demons are subject to you, are subject to us in your name. They didn't seem to experience scourging or um, being brought before Gentile kings, but that would be something that they would experience Later, Jesus decides that even though they're being sent out in a specific way now, he's going to give them instruction that's going to be even more relevant in the future. Yes, question. I think that verse in, uh, you're, you're referring to, you will not finish going through the, the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. How they would have exactly understood it, I'm not sure. That could refer to Jesus actually setting up his kingdom. But that is really the sense that, that Jesus has ultimately. His kingdom is not going to come right now. It could have if the people would accept the words of, the, of, the, of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, and so... It could have been the first coming of Jesus, but that's not what ends up happening. And so when Jesus says, you're not going to finish going through these cities, I think that he's referring to the second coming. You're not going to finish doing your evangelistic ministry. You're not going to finish telling people about my word until I actually come to set up my kingdom in my second coming. That's the way I would understand it. But certainly... And the things that Jesus predicts, the things that Jesus says that they're going to experience, they're not experienced right now. They must look farther into the future, into the later ministry of the apostles. But a second question that kind of follows from that is that, is Jesus only talking about the apostles here? Or does this also refer to later disciples? They're included too. And why would we say that they're included? Oh, yeah. Yeah, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave his master. Exactly. The criteria that the disciples fit also fit those who come after them. They are disciples of Jesus. We're not just talking about unique thing for the apostles. We're talking about the experience of any disciple, any follower, any learner of Jesus. Now, it's true the, the apostles were empowered in a special way, even in this immediate context. But in terms of who fulfills the criteria— that this passage discusses, it's any believer. So this is not just about the apostles. This is for all of those who become disciples of Jesus and who therefore are commissioned to make other disciples of Jesus. So that means you and I are included in this instruction as well. How certain is the future suffering and persecution 
for Jesus' disciples, according to this passage? Absolutely certain, right? You can even look at the verbs. They're future indicatives. These are not mights and mays and could be's. These are stated as fact. This is going to happen. This will happen to you. Now, of course, not every single particular thing might happen to every disciple, but this is going to be the experience of Jesus' disciples. Now, there are a couple of things that uh, Jesus says that may be a little bit confusing. One of the things he says is, don't worry about what you're going to say. When you're called to give testimony, don't think about, don't worry about what you're going to say. Well, does that mean we're not supposed to prepare? Not supposed to prepare to give a testimony? Well, there is that other scripture in the New Testament that actually says, be ready to make a defense. So that does have the idea of preparation. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, really, this is not about the preparation, but it's about the anxiety. Even if you're prepared, you can still worry. Jesus says, don't worry. Yes, it's good for you to make preparation, to think about what you want to say, you're going to say. But don't become anxious about it. Don't worry about it. Make your preparations and leave it with me, because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. And sometimes, for sure, Jesus' disciples won't even have time to prepare. They'll be put on the spot. Oh, what are they going to do then? Well, the Holy Spirit will be with them. When you have time to prepare, prepare, and don't worry. But when you don't have time, still don't worry. I'll be with you. The Spirit will teach you what to say. Another perplexing part is that statement from Jesus where he says, the hidden things are going to be revealed. What is he talking about there? We might want to connect it to Jesus' next words in verse 27. The things you heard in the dark proclaim in the light. The hidden things are going to be revealed. Jesus' secret words are going to be known as the disciples proclaim them. But this doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the section, where we're getting a number of reasons as to why the disciples should not fear men. Moreover, if we look at how this phrase is used in the other Gospels, in parallel situations, we see it embraces a little bit uh, different concepts. For example, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is saying there some of the same things he's saying here. But when he says that the hidden things are going to be revealed, he's actually talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is going to be revealed for what it is one day. And he also says that uh, secret words are going to one day be brought to light, what people say in secret. If we go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4 uses the same language in the context of talking about the purposes of lamps. He says lamps are not to be made to be covered up, but they are to be made to shine. The, sec- the, the hidden things are going to be revealed. So how should we understand this? I think that we have kind of two senses being brought out at once in this phrase from Jesus. The main idea is that a final revelation of everything is coming one day. The true heart states of people and their secret behavior and words, they're all going to be exposed. Moreover, and this is the second sense, what's true is going to be revealed one day to everyone. The truth about God, the truth about Christ. Everybody's going to know the truth one day. Therefore, because everything is going to be revealed for what it is, both the secret states of people and the truth of God, follow God and proclaim his truth now. Don't try to hide from God your sin. Don't try to hide his word. It's going to be known by everybody one day. Don't be ashamed of it now. Declare it. It's Jesus is motivating them by saying, one day everything is going to be revealed for what it is. Therefore, speak. Don't try to hide who you are and don't try to hide my word. There is going to be a final revelation. Another thing that Jesus says that may be a little bit troubling. Jesus says, if you deny him, he will deny you. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean if we deny Jesus even one time that we're toast? Well, that can't be. Because all of us denied Jesus before we were saved, right? In one way, even if we didn't say those words, we lived that way. Moreover, even those who are saved can temporarily, directly deny Jesus. And who's a good example of that? Peter, right? He denied Jesus three times. He's an apostle. Is there no hope for Peter? No, he was restored. He repented. 
The idea is this denial cannot be a lasting state for the believer. This can't be his ultimate choice, or else there's no hope of salvation. Ultimately, if you confess Jesus, he will confess you. Ultimately, if you deny Jesus, he will deny you. Another thing that Jesus says is a little confusing. He says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Wait a second. I thought Jesus did come to bring peace on earth. Isn't that what the angels announced? Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth toward men with whom God is pleased or to, on whom God's favor rests. Ah, but there is a difference between the peace presented by the angels there and the peace that Jesus discusses here. What's the peace that the angels announced? Peace between whom and whom? Peace between God and man. Not that everybody was immediately made to be at peace, but that the option of peace, the overture of peace, had been presented from God to man by the birth of his son, by the sending of Messiah into the world. There is now a way for peace to be made between God and man, and the angels were announcing it. That's not the peace described in Matthew 10. What's this kind of peace? This is, this is the peace between men. Specifically, this is the peace between family members. He says, my coming does not bring peace there. It brings a sword. And why? Because some people in a family will trust in Jesus and become disciples, and some others will not. And there's going to be conflict then in the family. It's sort of ironic. Those that become at peace with God find themselves no longer at peace with their families. In this sense, Jesus brings a sword into the relationship. Then someone may say, oh, I thought Jesus healed broken relationships. I thought he improved marriages and families. I thought he makes peace between people. Well, in a sense, he does. If we look at the church, yes, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Jew and Gentile. Uh, doesn't matter social station. Doesn't matter man or woman. They're all made to be at peace, one body in the church. And in a family, yes, Jesus can bring peace. If the different family members are willing to follow after God, become disciples of Jesus, as they submit themselves to him, as they love him and choose to love one another, it does bring peace into a family. But the key is, in the church and in a family, peace comes because people actually believe in Jesus. If not everyone chooses to believe, then you get strife. Then you get the sword, not because the, the Christian chooses that, because that's what unbelief does. John already told us in his gospel why that is. Darkness hates light. A person who does not believe in Christ often resents a family member who does because of the conviction his life brings, because of his words, because the unbelieving life is not validated. And so there is strife. And I think many of us can testify to that, can't we? I was just talking with a believer the other day, uh, a former Catholic. She got saved, and the rest of her family thought that she basically was brainwashed. She had kind of gone crazy. And I think many former Catholics can testify to that. I know that was the case for my dad when he got saved. The rest of his family, they didn't really want to have anything to do with him once once that happened, which is really sad because— if they really understood what was happening, if the family members understood what was happening, they would realize that this was a great thing that happened. You've actually come to know God. You've put away your evil. You've gone away from your evil path. You've become sober-minded for once, and you want to do your family good. But that's not what they see. They just see, oh, I, I don't like the way he is now. I don't like his lifestyle because it so contradicts my own and so many of you have experienced there is shunning, there is persecution, there are slanderous words. Sometimes, and I know this isn't something that many of us have experienced, but it is what Christians have experienced in the world. There's physical abuse and even killing. Family members put their Christian family members to death. That's exactly what Jesus said. It's happened historically, and it still happens today. 
So Jesus is very realistic when he says, there's going to be a sword in families because of me. But you can't love your family members more than me. If you do, you're not worthy of me. This helps us make sense, by the way, of Jesus' words in Luke 14, 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wait a second, Jesus is teaching us to hate people? No, that would violate Jesus' other's teaching. It's hyperbole. Jesus is saying the difference in your love for me and those other people must be so extreme that it even looks like hate. That you are so devoted to me that should the others turn against you, you will still follow me. There is a high cost in following Jesus, and that cost is particularly felt in families. You know, another poignant experience in my life relates to this. There was a a young guy who I knew in high school who turned to follow Jesus. My brother had witnessed to him. I knew him. I hadn't witnessed to him so much. But after he became a Christian, I was trying to encourage him and disciple him. And he was excited about following the Lord and, and, and making the different aspects of his life conform to Jesus. But then one day I drove him home. And right before he left, he just told me, he said, I can't be a Christian anymore. And he said, I love my family too much. And they don't want me to be a Christian. So he just told me point blank. My family means I can't become a Christian. I was dumbstruck. But in a sense, Jesus said, you should expect that. We... Maybe you've seen that too. Certainly when it comes to romantic relationships, that sometimes causes people to stop following Jesus. They have this sinful relationship or they love an unbeliever and they're not willing to give that up for the sake of Jesus. They choose that person over the master. Jesus says, you can't love someone else more than me. I I think I heard someone say, or maybe I just heard this third second hand, third hand, in response to, well, you got to choose Jesus and not your family, someone might say, oh, I'd rather go to hell with my family and my relatives than to go to heaven without them. That may sound noble, a way to honor your family, but understand, if you have relatives in hell, that's not what they want for you. Think back to Luke 16. There's a man, a rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell, and the rich man, whenever he's there, he speaks and he says, can you send Lazarus to my brothers who are still alive in the earth? And what does he want them to know? doesn't tell them, oh, tell them that they can come join me here. I need some company. No, he says, tell them they will never come to this place. Please tell them so they might never come here. So really, if you want to honor your relatives, even those who passed on and perhaps even gone to hell, then don't follow them. That's not what they would want for you. And you do not do them any good by joining them in hell. Rather, you if you really love them, you should not only save yourself, but save them. Give them the message that would give them salvation. So there's a great cost when it comes to families and following Jesus. And that's not the only kind of cost. And there's a lot of suffering associated with following Jesus. So that might make us ask this question. Does following Jesus actually make life better or not? Well, it depends on what you mean. Will Jesus improve the physical circumstances of your life if you follow him? That is what many prosperity preachers would say. And even those who are not known for a prosperity gospel, they might still say, oh, Jesus is going to bless you if you follow him. He's going to make your life better. He's going to make your your circumstances better. In many cases, no, that's not true. Actually, he makes it worse. (laughs) You have many broken relationships. You lose your bonds with loved ones. You experience economic hardship. You're sometimes physically abused, slandered, or even killed. It's hard to say that Being killed is an improvement to your life circumstances. 
But if we consider things beyond physical circumstances, Jesus does make life better. You experience the blessing of going the wise way. You gain a new family in the church with strong and blessed relationships. You have a new ability to appreciate all the different little gifts that God gives in life and that he's put in creation. You have a new joy in making Christ known to other people. And you, most of all, you have eternal salvation and heavenly reward with Jesus. And just even knowing that gives you a joy that you taste now. I think many of you, most of you, hopefully all of you would testify that coming to Jesus has made your life better. Not because your circumstances improved, but because you know God. And that fills you with joy. But if you're looking for Jesus to improve your circumstances, Jesus tells you that's not the case. Those who follow him are going to suffer. And they're going to suffer some loss. Based on that truth, then, based on what we see in this passage, is it possible for a true follower of Jesus not to suffer for his Lord? Is there a way you can be a true follower of Jesus and not suffer? No, you can't. Jesus says it right here. Now, perhaps for a time, you might not suffer or might not suffer greatly. Or perhaps when you do suffer, you'll be just so filled with joy in the Lord that the suffering doesn't even seem to phase you. I think there are probably ways that you right now are suffering or have suffered for Jesus that you don't even think about. Because you're like, oh, that doesn't even matter. Because I got Jesus. I've got salvation with my Lord. So that's also true. And not all of us are going to suffer in the same way. But we can't escape the fact that all those who are disciples of Jesus, will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this so plainly. Paul tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we maintain, no, there is another way. I can follow Jesus and not suffer, like I thought when I was in high school. We have to wrestle with Jesus' words here. Are we greater than our master Jesus? Do we think we found a secret way that even Jesus didn't know about? I know. We should not deceive ourselves. All who desire to follow Jesus will suffer for him. But really, that's a blessing, as as other scriptures will share. So you can see, you can already see by talking about these questions, there's some important application for us. Let's consider application more closely. First of all, How should a prospective disciple respond to this teaching from Jesus? You want to follow Jesus? This is what you should expect. Yeah, Ron. Yeah, those are good. We'll say more about those in just a second. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, that's the main thing. Knowing what to expect, you've got to count the cost of following Jesus. And we see this brought out more in Luke 14. And some analogies there that Jesus presents. He says, knowing what's coming, count the cost like someone who's going to build a tower. Before he starts construction, he's going to make sure he has enough funds and materials to finish or else he's going to have to abandon part way and be humiliated in front of everyone. Be like someone who's about to go to war with another king and another kingdom before they even arrive, make sure you have enough of a force to be able to oppose him and to, to win. If not send a peace delegation. Now don't be humiliated later. So it is that Christians, we can't have the wrong idea what following Jesus is like. Even for those who want to follow Jesus, they must count the cost. Yes, Roy. Mm.
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Roy. And that goes along with what Rob was just saying. Because we know what we're in for, we need to act accordingly. We got to depend on God. We need to put on his armor. We need to uh, prepare ourselves for action, as First uh, Peter says. I know pastor's just getting into that book now. We need to prepare for spiritual warfare and persecution and suffering that we might make Jesus great, that we might be able to stand firm because we know what we're getting into. It is a great deception of Satan to say, oh, life will be easy now that you've become a Christian. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future. You can continue to live in ease. That's not the way. We, as you said, we've, we've become soldiers in Christ's army. And we'll never be able to stand without him. We need to run to him, run to his word, run and pray. Now, making this cost clear, is that going to maybe turn some people off from the gospel? Well, perhaps. But at least those who are turned off or who reject, at least they're properly informed. What's the point of bringing people supposedly into the kingdom if they're not going to last? If we don't help them count the cost, then we just make false converts. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Of course it is. We know that from the other things we've studied, even what Steve presented last week, Jesus is God, the great I am, the Messiah. He's the source of life. Even in this passage, we see the motivations from Jesus. Man can't destroy your soul. God can. Fear God, not man. And God cares for you. He'll be with you. He has such intimate knowledge and care for you. He'll protect you until he takes you home. Don't live for just this brief time on earth. Don't live for the now. Live for the final result, for the future verdict. What's the profit of even obtaining the whole world if you forfeit your soul? As Jesus says, if you cling to life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you cling to Jesus and you suffer for him, even to the point of losing your life for him, you'll find life eternal. It is worth it to follow Jesus. You gain a much greater reward and blessing. You gain Jesus himself. It may be difficult, but God has given us his word, his spirit, brothers and sisters in the church to comfort us, strengthen us, embolden us in this battle. Now, someone might ask, oh, along the second question, we've already kind of discussed the answer. How are you going to be able to stand? You might say, oh, I don't know. When suffering comes, I might just fall away. Well, you need to prepare. And how do you do that? Not by psyching yourself up, but by depending on the Lord, by making sure you go to him every day, that you're growing in your sanctification. We don't become perfect. We don't become bulwarks that will never be bowed by persecution. All of a sudden, it's a process of growth. And we're confident by the Lord that we will never be tested beyond our ability. He's always going to be with us. He's always going to provide if we will seek him. But someone might ask, could a temporary denial of Jesus be wise? You know, someone says they're going to kill me or they're going to do something really bad to me unless I deny Jesus. Maybe it would be good to just deny Jesus now so that I have more opportunity to tell people about Jesus later. This isn't necessarily something that all of us face right now, but it is a question that people have faced throughout time. You're faced with death. Is it more profitable to just deny now so you can stay alive and tell more people later? Well, there's a twisted logic. In one sense, it seems logical to just deny temporarily, but it reveals a lack of trust in God and an overestimation of one's own power. We think that we can protect ourselves if we just do certain things. But you can do everything in your power to protect yourself and still be put to death. That was Thomas Cranmer's experience. He, he tried to deny Jesus or deny the true gospel so that he would not be burned at the stake. But he was going to be burned anyways. So when he was burned, he, he recanted of his recanting. And he said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to testify what is the truth. We can overestimate our power to deliver ourselves and underestimate God's power to deliver us. We can do everything that, from a human perspective, looks like we're going to die because we're being faithful to the Lord, and he can still deliver us. Moreover, to temporarily deny Jesus does great damage to yourself and to others spiritually. You're testifying to all that Jesus is not that great. Jesus is not that important, and that Jesus can't provide for you even in death. 
What good is such a faith, even if it survives? What kind of value does that faith have to the people that you want to tell the gospel to? If you do make converts, they're going to be wimpy converts and probably maybe false converts because you didn't let a shining faith be displayed. No, a temporary denial is, is not wise and does great damage. It isn't to say that if you do temporarily deny that you've lost all hope. No, we see Peter's example again. Those who repent of their denial, they can be restored and be used powerfully by the Lord. One kind of big question in terms of application for us to consider is, if Jesus taught all his disciples to expect suffering, why does it seem like most American Christians don't suffer? Don't suffer for the Lord. Some of them do. I think most American Christians, at least from my observation, and maybe yours too, they seem to be at ease. Nothing disturbs them. They're not suffering for the Lord. And it is true, we have gracious protections and freedoms in our country. And not all of us suffer in the same way, but Jesus says this is the experience of all his disciples. Will any of us ever really escape it? The most likely reason that Christians in our country are not suffering is because they're not faithful to the Lord. They're not faithful to their master. Maybe they're not Christians, but even if they are, it's so easy to just look at what other Christians do, what's become cultural, and do that than rather than what Jesus says in his word. We often, Christians often, don't want to do anything that makes them uncomfortable or that might offend someone else. And primarily that means we don't share the gospel with people. And that's why we're not persecuted. We don't share the gospel. We don't even try to share the gospel. We don't pray for opportunities to share the gospel. We don't take the opportunities that we're given. We don't look for and try to create opportunities. We make excuses. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to lose this relationship for later on. I don't want to jeopardize my job or my financial situation. Or I just don't have the time right now. What did Jesus commission us to do? Where are our priorities? Why are we ashamed of him? Why do we refuse to acknowledge the plight of our countrymen who are lost without salvation in Jesus? We have treated the gospel as a boring, non-essential thing. Oh, they seem to be doing just fine. I don't need to share them the gospel. Share with them the gospel. This is so wrong. May God forgive us for this. May God help us. May God fill us with a heart that is bold and loving to share the word with others. We will suffer some for doing this. We won't suffer like other people do in the world, but we will suffer, but we will please our Lord when we do that. Jesus gave us the example, did he not? He willingly suffered so that others might be saved and that he might please his father. It's the same with us. We can't, if we want to be faithful, we can't help but be like our master, which means declare forth the word of God and be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. If we've told Jesus in our confession, yes, Jesus, I am ready to die for you. I'll take up my cross. And can we not live lives where we tell others about him? Can we not do the smaller thing? Now, in, say, in exhorting us to think about suffering for Jesus' sake, just remember, I'm not saying, the word's not saying, Jesus is not saying that we are to suffer needlessly. Suffer for suffering's sake. This is a problem that developed in the early church after the days of the apostles. There was an obsession with martyrdom. It's like people were trying to get themselves killed. We're to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. If we don't have to suffer, we don't, uh, if we don't have to suffer in being faithful to the Lord, we're not to seek that suffering. We're not masochists. We don't get any sort of reward for suffering needlessly. But where suffering is required, yes, we want to do that. Also, we're not to suffer for the wrong reasons. Suffer for being evil. This is something that even comes out in 1 Peter. Don't suffer for doing what is wrong. Suffer for doing what is right. Many Christians suffer in being a witness to the world because they're actually doing evil. They're being tactless. They're being rude. They're being unloving. They're being annoying. 
then they suffer. And they think, oh, you know, the reason I'm being rejected is because I'm being faithful to the word. No, sometimes Christians suffer just because they're being annoying. We are not to suffer as evildoers. We are not to suffer because we have no compassion on the lost, and therefore we're just a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal in their ears. We are to be gentle, genuinely loving, but bold to declare the truth. We want to follow Jesus' example. Spend time with sinners like he did. Show them that we care, and then open our mouths and speak to them. A lifestyle is not enough. You know, someone once said, and this is not in the Bible, but it's a famous saying, share the gospel, use words if necessary. I think it was a medieval theologian or, or monk or something who said that. Yeah, there's some helpfulness in that. Your lifestyle should back up what you say, but you can't, you can't share the gospel without opening your mouth. You've got to speak words. That's what Jesus called us to do. And remember, this calling that we have, it's not just for radical, extra spiritual Christians. It's for all Christians. We're not all going to witness in the same way. We're not all going to suffer in the same way. But we all are to obey our master. We're all called to do this as Jesus' disciples. We're to make disciples. So how are you doing that? Are you contributing to the cause of Christ? Or because you are so afraid of suffering, are you unfaithful to the Lord? Ooh, we're one minute over. If you have any comments or questions based on today's lesson, please email me. This is a sobering word, but it's one that we need. And Jesus gives us the comfort so that we can stand even in the midst of suffering and persecution. Next week, we're going to talk further about the proper response to Jesus and all his teaching. Let me close in prayer for today. God, I thank you for this word. God, we do need you. There's no way we can be faithful. There's no way we can, st no way we can stand in suffering. No way we can even declare your word unless you are with us. God, cause us not to fear man. Help us to take to heart the words of this passage. And remember that there is a final verdict that we are looking to. We want to be pronounced faithful in that day. We want to be owned by you rather than denied by you because we just kept denying you in our lives. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you do this work in Calvary and my life and the lives of any who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. See you next week.